Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. By way of introduction, I want to first of all give a very, very quick review of our message from last week in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. We looked at a very large passage that shows how the early church broke out from under the shadow and umbrella of Judaism, and that's what we have going on. Judaism is large. It's a massive religion. It is part and parcel of the society and lives of the people there in Israel. But Judaism had various sects that were attached to it. We knew them as Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. And another one that what they were perceiving that was growing was this thing called the church. And so we had this new entity known as the church, and, and at first it looked like simply another sect that was still fully identified as being part of Judaism, and it was very Jewish in its makeup because of the nature of where it started. The apostles are preaching about Jesus being the promised Christ or Messiah from the Old Testament. Miracles are being done of all sorts by them. Demons are being cast out. People are being healed. The people are flocking to them, and the religious leaders grow in jealousy. The apostles, as a result, are therefore arrested by the religious leadership, the council, also known as the Sanhedrin. They are booked into a public jail. Then in the evening time, an angel miraculously rescues them out of the jail and tells them, go back and start preaching again. Ultimately, they are brought up on charges. They are brought before the Sanhedrin. And the anger of the council is all centered upon the fact that the apostles keep saying over and over again in their preaching that the Jews had killed Jesus and that he, Jesus, had been raised again by God. And this brought them to the edge of having the apostles themselves killed in their fury. And if it had not been the intervention of a man named Gamaliel, which uh, was a man who was a man who was an, a well-respected leader in the council, a Pharisee, and deeply respected, he intervened, and he ultimately said, after discussing some uh, historical events, that if God is in this movement called the church, then nothing will stop it. And if God is not in this movement, it will simply die off. So leave it alone, and it will die off. And as I ended the sermon last week, I pointed out that 2,000 years of history proves that God is with the church. The soil of every continent is now stained by the blood of martyrs as movements and governments have sought to destroy the church to no avail. But Jesus declared that he would build his church and nothing, beloved, will ever overcome it. Back a bit further in Acts, we saw that God had had to deal strongly with a couple of people in the church. By this time, the church was in the thousands, well over 10,000 people. And within there, two individuals, a husband and a wife, Ananias and Sapphira, were killed by God in the midst of the church, right in the middle of a service. It was all built around the fact that they had sold land and claimed that the full selling price would be given to the church for the purpose of the needs of the church, those who were needy. But in fact, they had held some back and then lied about it. And each of them, in their time, when asked about this by the apostles, 
lied and were struck dead. You can imagine that the most biggest understatement in that section is that therefore a great fear was upon the church and all who heard of this situation. Well, we are going to pick back up with that issue of money today. We're now back into the issue of money and the caring for the need of those who are in the church. And what we have here is a very quick little story to introduce some very key people while explaining how the church developed its leadership beyond the scope of the apostles. Up to this point, the apostles were sufficient and they were taking care of business. Now things were getting too complex and they needed to develop more leaders. And in the process, it shows us how, and this is the part you want to understand, it shows us how the early church leadership was able to work through pressures and crises in the church, and the way they did it was by having a clear vision of the priorities for a church. And so in this message today, by God's grace, we will gain three lessons through the presence of a crisis. Three things, in other words, that any believer can learn when a crisis hits. Let me read now the passage. It's in chapter 6, 1 through 7. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select among from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. May the Lord bless his word. Now, if you are one given to marking in your Bible, I would recommend that you, with a pencil circle, in verse 2, the phrase, the Word of God. In verse 4, circle to prayer and the ministry of the Word of God. And then verse 7, the, at the very end of the verse, the faith. And then lightly draw a line connecting them, because that is the point of the passage. It's really all about the Word and the ministry of the Word and the work of the Word. The Word being the Bible and all that it contains, the doctrine. But in this, it's done in a story, and, and in it, it's all built around in, uh, this crisis that has developed. And as I said, these crises are something that reveal and help us learn if we're wise people. And so I want to pull out three things that a crisis can do in the life of a believer if we are wise. In verse 1, we see the very first lesson, and that is that crises reveal existing weakness. A crisis will reveal an existing weakness. A crisis, simply put, beloved, is nothing more and nothing less than a trial. And when it strikes, it is exceedingly revealing to those who are wise enough to quietly observe. Never observe an individual in their mighty moments, in their moments of triumph and strength. Always observe them in their crisis, and you will learn much. We all like to think that we're doing better than we are. We are more mature. We are more stable. We are more wise. And then that crisis strikes us. And what happens is the real you steps forth. 
Some people are literally paralyzed when a crisis hits. Some look for an escape. Some demand pity. Some dig the hole deeper that they're in. And some will respond with wisdom. I saw this firsthand as a police officer, a man that I went through the academy with and that was, a, was just an incredibly sharp man. He, was, uh, he, he learned well. He understood things. He had good tactic tra- in his training. He was an excellent shot. He was in excellent shape. He was just a, a good guy. And we went through the academy together, and when we went out onto the street, he was on the same shift I was. And so we're both idiot rookies wandering around with our heads in the cloud. And we're both called to the same call with our training officers when we roll up. And it was a minor crisis in the scheme of things. And I watched a man who had all of the skills, all of the training, all of the ability literally freeze in front of my eyes. I'd heard about it. I'd never seen it happen in my life. He literally did not know what to do. He didn't know how to act. He just stood there while a big old honking fight is taking place at his feet. That's the reality. You can have all of the training. You can take all the notes. You can grow in this and grow in that and think that you're now ready. And then the reality of the life strikes you and the real you comes out. And that's what we have here in Acts 6. A crisis is not bad, and we should never complain about it. In fact, all of us should expect crises. In fact, we should be amazed when we have a year that no crisis strikes us, for we live in a fallen, sinful, broken world. But what is bad is to not have already anticipated key issues, and prepared with yourself with initial non-negotiable reactions or responses. Let me, let me just say it a different way. How many of you, and I don't want to see your hand obviously, but how many of you have thought through, what would I do if the Lord takes my spouse from me? What would I do if I suffer a catastrophic job loss? What would I do If my child rebels in the most egregious of ways, what would I do? What are my non-negotiables? What will I do in my job if they state this or that? How many of you have worked out in your mind the what-ifs that could happen and determine certain non-negotiables that are built upon a biblical mindset? as opposed to the person who just allows the, the events of the world to constantly wash over them, and, they, and then they have to react, but there's no preparation in what they ought to do. That's what we see in Acts 6. A crisis has, strike, has uh, strikes, and how it is dealt with will either be healing or a, and stability or further division. In fact, this is actually a very frightening part if you understand things from a pastoral perspective. The arrest of John and Peter wasn't the scary part, though it may have been for them. The second arrest of all the apostles and their beating wasn't the scary part, though it may have been unpleasant. The scary part is what's going on here in chapter 6. This is a kind of thing, this is a kind of crisis that comes up in any church and it threatens to destroy the church. How it gets handled will define whether the church goes forward or stumbles and falls. And so this crisis is really a pastoral crisis. It's very typical of the kind that will strike a local church. Now in here we have some people and groups that we need to understand. The first, he says, are the Hellenists. We see that in verse 1, the Hellenistic Jews versus the native Hebrews. So we have the Hellenists versus the Hebrews. Well, Hellenist is, and maybe your translation has it uh, something like the Greek speaking. The Hellenists were Jews who spoke Greek. These were people from other countries and were part of what's known as the diaspora. 
The diaspora were all of those people that you read about as you read through your Bible, that as the nations start to take Israel captive, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, etc., etc., that as they did, they would take the people out of the land and scatter them to other nations that had been conquered. And it was simply a means to control the populace. You may die for your nation and your land, but you're not going to die for some foreign land that you're stuck in. Well, these people are living there, and they put down roots, and now we have multiple, multiple generations of them, and they are actually now more Egyptian than Jewish or Israelite. And it was very obvious who these people were in Jerusalem, because they would stand out with their language, with their dress, with all of their customs and such. They would have their own country's language along with the language of Greek, which Alexander the Great had established as the standard language across the empire. These were Jews, though, that were still Jews and loved Yahweh. They had traveled all the way to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost and to worship on that day. And because of the gospel on that day that was preached by Peter, they had heard and believed And they were staying there to learn more. But understand that these Hellenists did not have employment. They didn't have a home. They didn't have any sort of a support system. In fact, they lived as strangers in this land because they had a totally different set of societal standards that they lived by. And now they were in the middle of Jerusalem that had its own set. If you've ever done uh, any kind of international travel, and it wasn't just with the tour group, and you got out among the people, you know what I mean by that, where you're just, at first it's all exciting and so neat, and everything's new, and you're like, oh, isn't this cool? But there comes a point when there's just, you're tired. You're tired all the time, more than you realize, because you always are a bit off. You don't know when you're supposed to stand, and you don't know when you're supposed to sit, and then you don't know why they want you at that part of the table, and then you didn't understand why pushing the soup away, which I did, was exceedingly rude um, and, and offensive to the household, and then you found out that you're not supposed to give them flowers that number in... And, and the number is only 11, that in fact, that's a terrible thing to do. And you're just constantly making mistakes, even though you mean well. And that's what's happening to these. They're Christians, but they, they don't fit what's going on. Well, the Hebrews, they're the ones who were the ones that were Jews, who lived and were raised in Israel. And there tended to be among them a sense of superiority because they had stayed with the motherland, if you will. They were Aramaic-speaking, and they were very Jewish. These would be people who owned the land. They had trades and a complete social structure to support them. In there, we talk or find that the widows specifically of the Hellenists were being overlooked. Understand that in the Bible, the widows are a unique group along with orphans and the aliens, those who are strangers in the land. No, it's not taught. Those are not discussions about uh, illegal immigration or anything like that. It's just those who are strangers in the land are a unique subgroup in the Bible, as well as widows and orphans. Here, it's specifically widows. And we find God in the Bible as being a God who executes justice for the widows and the orphan. Simply put, the widow and the orphan were very easily exploited. They had no protection. They had no family structure, and it is still true to this day. Many a televangelist has milked dry a poor widow as she is alone at home, and he keeps her company via the television set and telling her to send in another bit of seed faith. The widows and orphan are exploited. They have no protection. And therefore, when you read in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, repeatedly, God brings up the widow. And he reminds Israel before they enter the promised land to care for the widow, to not exploit the 
with the widow and to remember her in very practical ways, such as you never come back into your field after you've done your harvest and do a second harvest. You always leave whatever is left behind for the widows so that they can go and glean it and have food to eat. The Psalms talk about those who are wicked as being the ones who take advantage of the widow, the orphan, the alien. And so in 97 verse 3, the wicked think that God does not see, but he does see, he takes note, and they will be under his judgment for all that they have done against those widows. The widow referenced here in Acts are those who had on their own traveled from a foreign land all the way to Jerusalem on their own. That's an incredible act of um, religious fervor. They wanted to be part of the day of Pentecost. They had come to faith. Now they're part of the church. They had not planned on staying for a long time. They would have limited funds, and anyone who would be their support structure or who could speak on their behalf was back in their, in their country, and therefore they were alone. The church was to be concerned for these sort of people, but being concerned and actually acting on it properly ends up being two separate issues. And so they're being overlooked in the feeding, the daily feeding. And this gets us into, remember, that the people would sell their property as needs arose, and then they would give it to the apostles, and then the monies would be dispersed in such a way so that their basic needs could be met. And now we're right back into that issue again. This was a picture of it, that daily there was just some feeding that need to, needed to take, be taken care of. When Matt and I go to Ethiopia, one of the costs that the church pays for is the feeding of all the pastors who come. They're all desperately poor. They come from various parts of uh, the surrounding area in the rural areas. They come and they have very little money. Most of them will just sleep on the ground in the room that we teach in. And then we feed them two meals a day at the cost, at our cost, the church. And they depend on that. And if we don't provide that, then they will go hungry each day because they're not at their home where they can then go and pull down a mango or a papaya or whatever it might be and, and eat that and, and be sustained. And so this is just very typical of what happens even to this day in many parts of our world. They should be concerned. The church should be caring for them. We know that they are, but somehow these women are being overlooked. And the question that some people have in their, maybe in your study Bible, uh, in the commentaries most definitely, is was this done on purpose or was it by accident? And we can't say for absolute certainty, but I do believe that it was done on purpose. And and though I can't be absolutely certain, I want to show you quickly why I think that. The first reason, and there's two of them, is that it was, it was magically limited to the Greek-speaking widows. It's hard if it was just by accident that some were being overlooked, that it would only be the Greek-speaking, the foreign widows that were being overlooked. The second is that it wasn't an occasional situation that they maybe went hungry for a day, but it was in the daily giving of the food that they were just magically being overlooked on a daily basis, and these poor women were becoming exceedingly hungry. What we have, if I'm correct, is the sin of partiality. Ananias and Sapphira were not the only ones sinning. Now, I made that point when I preached in that section. And I, and I say it only because over and over again, when you read uh, sermons or you hear sermons done on the Ananias and Sapphira, it's something about how God purifies his church. Over and over again, that's what they're saying. As if now, once Ananias and Sapphira dealt with, the church is pure. And the church is in no way pure. It's filled with redeemed sinners. And, and when you have 10,000, 15,000 people, surely there are more than just these two who are in sin and not dealing with it. And this passage shows us that, in fact, that's exactly what's going on. In verse 1, it says, Now at this time, or in these days, indicating that all of these events are going on at the same time. 
The details are not given because they don't, they're not really important. Some sort of breakdown has happened from the point in time where the money is given to the apostles to the point when the food is actually being distributed. There's some kind of breakdown. But behind that is the issue of partiality, which is a sin that is considered very serious in the Bible. In fact, I would ask that you would turn to James chapter 2 while I say a couple more words. Partiality, if you're unsure what it is, is seen in racism, in what is called tribalism, sexism, bribery, injustice, and favoritism. All of those are just different words for the sin of partiality. So in Deuteronomy, Moses, God tells the leaders through Moses... You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. So right off the bat, they're getting ready to go into the land, and he says, look, you must judge righteously. Show no favoritism, no partiality. He's wealthy or powerful or respectable, and this one is not. Doesn't matter. You judge righteously. And so in the Old Testament, the issue of partiality is usually focused upon those in power and influence, and they are showing the preference over the weak. It happens still to this day, right? We'll go to James chapter 2, and I'll just briefly take us through 18 verses, starting in verse 1. Why I'm here is that many of you may not know this, but the very first book of the New Testament written is James. And it was written right around 45 AD. And so a very short time after the ascension of Christ and a very short time after the events that we're reading about here in Acts. And it's a very Jewish book. And in chapter 2, he says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And then he gives an example. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a man, poor man, in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps a whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who have been, are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, in this first section, he obviously is dealing with the issue of partiality within the church, and he's describing a situation that's very similar to what's happening here in Acts. The wealthy person, the one of great importance, and, and it's obvious to all that he is, he shows up at a service, and they immediately treat him with deference and honor, because in, in that culture, that's exactly what you would do. But that has no place for it in the church. Meanwhile, the one who is poor, and again, I, my mind goes to Africa where, where you see genuine poverty, not that pretend poverty that we call in America, where people are genuinely poor and they only have the wretched rags on their body that are soiled and, and they all take on the same reddish tinge to it because that's the, the color of the dirt 
in Africa or many parts of Africa. And so after a while, you just, they just stand out. You see them because they wear the uniform of a poor person. And you can see how they're ignored and mistreated. And this poor believer, it's a poor believer, but he's a believer. He comes in. Well, he's treated shabbily. You stay over there, and they usually stink because they have no means to clean themselves. Or you sit down here at my feet. It's just the spirit where we will treat you well and we will treat you poorly, not based upon anything other than your position in life. He says, this is evil. This is absolutely evil. This is not how your faith should manifest itself. He says in verse 1, don't hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. It's not fitting a Christian. So he goes on. What use is it in verse 14, my brethren? So now he's going to get into the real uncomfortable parts of this. What is it? What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And the answer he is looking for is no, it can't. Many, many people in the church say, I believe in Jesus, and they manifest no genuine works that are consistent with that. And his issue is to draw that out. And so he says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of what? daily food, like these widows. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. Or in America, we would just say, I'll pray for you. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is it? Even so, faith. That was the illustration. Now he's going to go back to the key point. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Meaning, you have the right declaration, the right doctrine. You know that there is but one God. He's like, I'm impressed. The demons got that and they're terrified of God. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? The hard reality is what you have back here in Acts chapter 6 is nothing more than an expression of whether or not these people have genuine faith. Are these people believers in the gospel? Have they been transformed by the gospel? And so that this is a crisis. This is not just a little oopsie. This is a serious thing that could destroy the young early church, and it's all about this issue of the widows. It's important to see that the daily serving of food to widows was not simply an administration issue. It wasn't just, well, we need to get the administration fixed. In the minds of the apostles and in the minds of God himself, it is a gospel issue. It's an issue of gospel obedience that there are consequences to believing and following Jesus as Lord, and one of them is that you take care of those in the church who have need. So the apostles now have pressure. This outcry has come to them, and they have to make some decisions. So a crisis is here, and it's going to reveal certain things. Ministry pressures, beloved, will destroy and derail a church or ministry. And so a good leader needs to learn how to not be reactive. Any of you, whenever a crisis hits, the worst thing you need to do is just react. Almost always you're, you're going to end up regretting that. But the way you do that is by establishing non-negotiables early on in your mind that are biblically sound. So this would be true of you, all of you, whether you're in leadership or not, because all of you lead in some way if it's not just yourself. But you need to know, have you established in your mind, in your personal life, in your work life, your marriage, your family, your finances, certain non-negotiables? Things that are biblically derived that are absolutely non-negotiable in your mind. So that when the temptation or the threat or the crisis strikes, you already have a game plan. You just need to look at it and, and act on it. 
How many of you have established certain non-negotiables so that when the problems and the crisis arise, you can respond? It is imperative for you to do so. What will you not do, in other words, in your workplace? Have you all decided that? What is the things that you will not do that you refuse? If it comes that way, you have to accept the possibility of termination. And why is it that that's the line in the sand? Make certain that you have a good one. What line or lines are drawn that you will not cross? What about your finances? What about your spouse, your children? Beloved, sin crouches at the door of each of our hearts. None of us are exempt. It presses on us every moment of every day. And it moves us and pushes us to capitulate, to give in. And if we don't have standards and non-negotiables already clearly established in our hearts, we will eventually be gently nudged by sin to commit grievous sin. And then we'll scratch our heads and say, how did we get here? Well, that's what's happening here. The crisis strikes, but these are apostles. And they're ready, and they're going to respond. So the second point in verses 2 and through 4 is that the crisis gives the opportunity to show wisdom. That's why I always say, watch people in the time of crisis. You'll quickly find yourself respecting some people and dismissing others from your mind. You'll think, well, this person really has their life together. They got this and that. And then you watch them have a massive financial uh, fall. And you realize that you shouldn't respect them at all. Because they absolutely have been a man or woman who's in love and controlled by money rather than God. A crisis always gives opportunity, though, to show wisdom. Notice how calm the event is. I, maybe you don't, it doesn't stand out to you, but as a pastor, it stands out to me. You got people who are upset. Their widows are not being cared for, and they're being overlooked, and it's with something really basic. It's called food. And so they bring it to the apostles, but the apostles don't start yelling at each other. They don't start trying to figure out, well, who's at fault and want to yell at people. That's not going to fix anything. In fact, they don't even seem to enter into the equation. Who did what is not really important. What is important is that the crisis needs to be met and that they, as the leaders, need to model the right attitude and action. And so as good leaders, they rise up and they, they respond calmly. But they also respond with wisdom because they, they've already worked out in their mind certain non-negotiables. So what's the response? Well, it's very obvious that the apostles recognize two things. First, it's important. We need to resolve it. So they need to get this fixed. They can't just ignore it and hope it goes away. They have to step up as leaders and respond. But second, in verse 2, we see that they saw it as a possible threat to their priorities. This is so good because it shows how non-reactive they are. The people go to the apostles, hey, this is the problem. We need this fixed. And the apostles immediately say, you're right, it needs to be fixed, but we're not the ones that are going to fix it. We can't. Because if we are the ones that do it, it will take us away from the things we're supposed to be doing. That's the non-negotiable. And because they recognize that certain avenues of possible reactions and resolutions either opened, or because they recognize that, they, they now had certain options or avenues either open or closed to them. Once they looked at this and they realized we have to deal with this, and they're like, But we can't because if we deal with it, it will take us away from what we're supposed to be doing. Immediately, that limits their options, doesn't it? And that's the same thing for you. You you worry about all the what-ifs, but make certain non-negotiables and most of your what-ifs go away, don't they? Well, what if I buy the house and then there's termites and we don't know? And you're like, oh my goodness, do you want to own a house or not? Well, yes, then shush and buy a house. You know, 
don't, you can't be frozen with a And yet that's what happens. But what if I get sick? What if this happened? What if that happened? Blah, blah. You can't. You have to make certain decisions. And you also have to have certain non-negotiables, things that are good and right. And then in that, allow the fact that that immediately limits your choices. And it's okay. And so the apostles, they saw the need. They saw the solution. But most importantly is that they saw the solution could not directly involve them. So they say it's not desirable. It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God. We should not be doing that. That word desirable means literally it's not right. It's not fitting or proper. It's not that they're denigrating the waiting on the tables. That's obvious because they're going to make high requirements be for the men who will oversee that. The, the issue for them is it's just not fitting that they should be do, doing this because it will take them away from the things God commanded of them, which is the task of teaching and preaching. This is a very key passage for the current events within American church. Often people will look at this passage right now, and many sermons over the last couple of years have been preached on this when they talk about the social justice movement or the COVID. They seek to make the fact that the widows are overlooked as a point of the passage, and then they tell us that we need to feed the homeless or fight for immigration rights. That's not the point of the passage. And to follow that line of reasoning will always harm the church in the end. And the reason is that it will take the church off of its primary mission, which is the proclamation of the word, and it will redirect it to social issues. And over time, that it's not overnight. It's not like one day you're a solid church and the next day you're this whack job of a church. It's that over time, as you start to say, well, we need to be doing these things, and the leadership starts leading the way in, in these social issues, and they start to get away from deep, sound, faithful, theologically rich doctrinal preaching, that over time, that whole church begins to shift and ends up where it ought not to be. And so given time, the gospel and sound doctrine will steadily diminish in those churches while they focus on the rise of the social issue. And if you doubt this, merely study all of the old line, mainline, old mainline denominations in America, all of them. And they're all nowhere to be found. At best, they have some diaper ministry because they have lost their central task. We see this going on in the Southern Baptist. Right now, there's this massive battle brewing because there is this push to get down and dumb down and weaken the pulpits, and let's get busy about these social movements. And the pushback by people like myself, though I'm a nobody, is no, we're going to just keep bringing the word to you, and we're going to push back. The only thing that will ever resolve any of this will be a doubling down on the centrality of the preaching and the teaching of the word to the people of God at the local church level. So that's what's happening here. Having defined the limitations of their own labors, the apostles then define the boundaries of the church to work out a solution. I call this... Uh, the elders have heard me use this several times. I call this that you, get, you draw the lines where the people can color. That's my deep leadership principle, okay? It's, it's okay, we need, this is something we need to seek out the wisdom of the church or, or, or we have maybe a committee or a group of people and let's talk about how we're going to better work out the Sunday school, let's say. Well, before we do that, the elders sit down and we come up with what are the boundaries? Because we don't want it to just be do whatever you want and then everyone hates each other as everyone has their own personal idea. Instead, what we do is we give the boundaries and we don't care what they do in those boundaries, just stay in those boundaries and then work it out. That's all they're doing here. They're, they don't want to deal with the details. They don't have the time, but they are going to create the boundaries. They say there's we need seven men, and there's no spiritual meaning behind it. I read way too many pages and way too many commentaries where they're trying to come up with some deeper reason why it was seven. I'm like, oh my goodness, seven. 
But it is worth noting that they were men. And the reason is it's a position of oversight and authority that is potentially difficult, and therefore it would be driven by these men. But these are men, they say, that were to be of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, that, that full, play race. It's a, it's a word that speaks of being under the control or abiding relationship of the Spirit, where, where they are people controlled by the Spirit. It's not some weird, unique, charismatic empowerment. It's just simply men full of the Spirit, that they are carried along by the Spirit. And, and here's when, what does it look like to be full of the Spirit is, is a man or woman who is carried along by the Word of God, which is the vehicle by which the Spirit works. It is a Spirit-inspired word. That's why he says that they are full of the Spirit and of wisdom. They are men that know the word so well that they will handle this, not just in a worldly way properly, but they'll handle it in a skillfully biblical way. They'll deal with it rightly. It's a very emotionally charged problem, and it needs wisdom and Spirit-led men to resolve it. And then the apostles, once these men are selected, they, not the church, but they will put them in charge by laying their hands on them and praying over them, therefore delegating their authority. And now when these men speak or make a decision, it is no different than the apostles making a decision. And then in verse 4, they reaffirm, look, this is what the apostles have to be doing. We need to be about the ministry of prayer and the word of God. It's important that we stay focused. In other words, problems will arise in any church. Crises will be part of all pastoral ministry. In fact, Grayson is learning that more and more, that, that once you become a pastor, that what you spend most of your time doing is dealing with squeaky wheels. And it just never ends. And, and sometimes you have to almost break away rudely from some of those squeaky wheels, if you will, just so you can just spend time with the faithful ones because there's so many who are so faithful and diligent working and you just need to encourage them and thank them and praise them and maybe strengthen them a bit. But, but what you always are dealing with are just little mini crises, little fires all the time. Uh, he told me, Shortly after he came on staff full-time, that he was, I'm not going to properly quote him, but basically he was surprised at how much time he just spent talking to people or meeting. You know, you get your vision of, man, now I'm going to be able to focus on the Word of God and the study of the Word of God and teach and stuff. And all of a sudden it's Wednesday and you're preaching on Sunday. You haven't even cracked open the Bible to study for your sermon, but you have dealt with a lot of squeakies. You love the squeakies, they just squeak a lot. Listen, wise leaders will not let the problem define them. A wise leader will never allow the problems to control them. Instead, the wise leaders will always know that their default reaction is to go back to the Word of God and never let that threaten them. In fact, if you didn't know that, that's been my basic decision-making process for the last 25 years. Over the years, through sickness or crisis in the church, there have been ample opportunities where I would be so distracted. And and I just said it early on in my ministry that the one thing that I will produce is a biblically sound message every single Sunday. And with the exception of, I think, I I don't think I can count, I would be able to count it all on one hand and still have fingers left over the times I had to preach an old sermon simply because... I was not able to get my sermon finished. The one thing that I must do, what John must do, what Grayson must do, is bring the Word of God to you. It is an absolute non-negotiable. And so sometimes people say, well, pastor didn't come and see me when I was in the hospital. And, and, and I've been yelled at over the years for that. And I've also then looked at a, a man or a woman and said, that's because pastor was studying and he had other things that were more important that he had to take care of. I'm very sorry. 
I could not see you, but that's the way it is. It is a reality. The apostles could get easily sucked away from their central task, and they refused to do so. The application of all this, then, is seen in verses 5 and 6. The church gets right, right away behind it, and they got a solution, so let's do it. Seven Hellenistic men are chosen. Why do I know that? Seven Greek-speaking men. Well, because every one of their names is a Greek name, not a Jewish name. So this is really quite sweet. So you see the humility by the Hebrews, the Jewish, the Hebrew Christians in the church. They're in the majority. They're the ones that have the greatest influence. And yet when they hear of this situation, they are heartbroken over it, apparently. So much so that when the apostles say, we're going to choose seven men, and we want these men to be godly men, and they're going to oversee this, the church as a whole choose only Greek-speaking men. That way, they know it will be taken care of because these men will make certain that the Greek-speaking widows will be cared for. It shows great humility, possibly even some grief. There was no power issue of, well, I don't want to give that up, or why can't we be, or you know, we're still in the majority, so it should be four or three, or all of the other stupid things that happen in churches. There is just that simple dying to self and saying, then let's fix this and let's do it right. Let's get seven godly men who are Greek speaking. So who are these men? Stephan is a man that we'll see soon because he's going to be killed. In verse 8, though, we see him described as full of grace and power, performing great wonders and signs among the people. So he is an incredibly respectable man. Philip is a man we're going to see again. He's going to be with the gospel being preached to the Ethiopian in chapter 8. Nicholas, we know about him a little bit, that he is a proselyte from Antioch. Well, Antioch is coming. All these are, as Luke is introducing some key names and terms because they're, now he's going to develop them later on in Acts. Simon, uh, Stephan is the first guy that's going to be introduced, and Philip. And then Antioch, and Antioch becomes the center of the church planting ministry of Paul and Barnabas. But the fact that he's a proselyte from Antioch means he's not even a Jew. He was a Gentile who converted to Judaism as a true worshiper of Yahweh and now has believed in Christ. The others, we don't know anything about them. We just know that they're godly men full of the spirit and wisdom. And that, again, is the nature of ministry. Some will become very known by all, and they'll rise up, and everyone will talk about them, buy their their books, and download their podcasts, and the others will go about their whole life unknown and unremembered. The apostles pray, they lay their hands, and never again will we hear of this situation. It's resolved. Finally, In verse 7, then, we come to the end of this. And this is a summary statement that Luke likes to do in the book of Acts. We have this crisis then averted. Crisis brings clarity to the solutions. By having this crisis come, it clarified things. Now the apostles are, once again, back doing what they're supposed to do, which is the preaching and teaching of the word. The inner issues of the food and stuff, that's all been resolved. And so now we have this summary. The Word of God is really all that matters again. The Word of God must be proclaimed, for in it, you and I find the gospel. We find the mind and the will of God. We find our calling and purpose. The Christians and churches can't ignore sin, and if it does, it only does it for a while before it hurts the church. But sin cannot be the focus of the church. We obey, and we address sin because we learn of it, and we identify it, and then resolve it through the Word. In other words, all I'm saying is the Word must saturate everything. And as it saturates you as a church and the leadership, it creates a mindset that can resolve crises, just like the apostles did. They had a biblical mind, and so they were able to step into a potentially explosive situation and bring resolution quickly. And so we see in verse 7, the church growing. Why? Because the Word of God, that, by the way, should have been circled too. Uh, the Word of God is spreading. 
Why is this spreading? Well, the people are being taught by the apostles, and then they're going out with what they learn, and they're bringing it. So the church continues to see converts. But what's most shocking and what's most encouraging is it says here that a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. We now see the worst nightmare of the council coming true because now even the priests are becoming Christians. At any given time, there were fifteen to 20,000 priests and Levites. It was a major job. A lot of animals had to be killed and everything else had to be dealt with. And now we're hearing that a large number of them were hearing the gospel being preached by the apostles in the temple grounds, and they're coming into contact with these Jewish converts, and they are now believing. But what's interesting is being described as being obedient to the faith. So go to Romans 1 real quickly, and I, I want to spend just a couple of minutes, and then we'll bring this all to a close. What is meant by this obedient to the faith? Well, in the book of Romans, Paul deals with this, and he deals with it in, uh, as, as a key aspect of what genuine faith looks like. So in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith, that's not what I want, your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Yes, it is. Now go over to chapter 16. Keep your finger there, but go over to 16. Verse 19. And instead of the fact that your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world, notice what is being said. For the report of your obedience is reached to all, and therefore I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise what is good and innocent in what is evil. The point is, in the beginning, it's your faith is being seen by all or heard by all, but now at the end of this, it's the same thing. It's your obedience. They're one and the same. In chapter 10, verse 16, in chapter 10, verse 16, He talks about this. However, they did not all heed, that's a key word, the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? The word heed literally means to obey. When you come and you bring the message and, and of gospel, people will claim to believe. But in fact, what you're actually asking them when you say believe is that you're asking them to obey, that there is an obedient aspect to what that faith looks like. Now look at chapter eleven twenty three, dealing with the Jews. He says, and they, the Jews, if, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, grafted into the church and into salvation, okay? So if they, continue, if they don't continue in their unbelief, then skip down to verse 30. For just as you once were not unbelievers, but what? Disobedient to God. And he's talking to Gentiles there. But now have been shown mercy because of their, the Jews, disobedience. So again, this unbelief and faith and, and obedience is one and the same. Now again in verse 31, so these also have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they may now also be shown mercy. So in this idea is that the gospel that the apostles were preaching wasn't just this ask Jesus in your heart, warm and fuzzy thing. It wasn't a minimalistic gospel that anyone could kind of say they believed and then go on with their life. It was the kind of gospel, good news, message of Jesus Christ that was so intense that it literally caused even the priests to realize that they need to change, that they need, if this is true, then it means a radical life change where they become obedient to it. And so Paul is very quick in Romans to point out that to believe in Jesus is not cheap. 
In fact, in Romans 15, verse 18, it shows that the obedience that Paul was looking for was not a one-time act, but an ongoing lifestyle. So in 15, 18, he says, For I will not presume to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. He sees that when he preaches Christ, that there comes this obedience that is a lifestyle of word and deed. One that flows out of faith. In fact, he says in chapter 6 that if you believe in Jesus, that makes you his slave. That you are to follow him. And what he's saying, therefore, is that it's not just out of the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel then produces something in those who listen and believe. It's to produce faith. Not some vague type of faith but a vibrant, life-changing faith. And so I, I, I say this, and, because I, and we're going to bring it all to a close here, but that doesn't mean shut your brain off. Some of you say you believe. My question is, are you obedient to that faith? Do you believe it? James said in his passage, you show me your faith by your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You cannot just simply with empty words, beloved, say, I believe and I'm saved. That it's impossible. It is contrary to sound doctrine. These priests who heard the gospel and became obedient to the faith were very different than the priests they were the day before. These were men that then immediately had to shift their entire thinking pattern and lifestyle under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so must you. I have been deeply troubled for the last month or two, and I, and I, I think I'm going to turn it into a podcast with Matt. I don't know what I'm going to do with it because it, it just won't let me go. But it's, it's, in my mind, I just see the storm clouds coming. And I see the stupid things that Christians or professing Christians spend their whole life debating. And they're not preparing for the crisis. They're not remotely ready for it. They're light, fake, happy, cheap, sin-filled form of the Christian faith that they themselves hold on to will leave them utterly destroyed when these waves of persecution come. And they're coming, and they're right on the verge of breaking over, and we, and we can't quite stop worrying about our TikTok or our Instagram or whatever it might be. My brother here, Grayson, posted yet another meme or maybe it was, no, it was an article on church attendance. Just because he likes poking that bear. And I love him for poking that bear. And I love reading the comments of all of these professing Christians who find him legalistic, narrow-minded, small-minded, and everything else. Beloved, I posted on my Facebook page a very short article on apostasy last night. Read it. Apostasy, the denial of Christ, doesn't happen overnight. It happens bit by bit. And some of you on the verge of apostasy, and some I've already watched go away. I've watched it countless times. And one of the most basic things is church and fellowship with one another is optional. The call of all of this is we are called to be obedient to the faith. You do, is Jesus your Lord? And if he is, what's that look like? What's it look like? Can you show your faith by what you do and don't do? Is your life built on that? Does your marriage manifest that? Does your finance manifest that? Does your work ethic manifest that? There is no middle ground And when the shaking comes, and it's coming, that separation will be shocking. 
I, in a sick, twisted way, though my heart is filled with fear at the same time, want it to happen. Because on the other end of that, then that fake form of Christianity that we have spent so much time loving will be gone. Because nobody wants to be a Christian anymore. Because it is a thing of shame. And only the true disciple will pick up his cross and follow Jesus. And the rest will go off tutting themselves and talking endlessly about loving their neighbor. The time is coming, beloved. It's a time for you and I to determine, are we men and women obedient to the faith? Have we come to the risen Christ? Is he our Lord? Shake it off. Shake off the things that are grabbing hold of you. You do not know what tomorrow. I buried two people so far in the last couple of weeks. Death comes and it's chasing you like the hound. And you assume you have tomorrow. You do not. Some of you need to repent. Some of you just need to repent. Some of you need to hear and believe and pursue Christ with all your heart. Let me close this by these few words. What did you see in yourself when God last graciously placed a crisis before you? What are the things that you need to repent and then have you done so? What are the things in that crisis you give thanks for? What are the things that need to be strengthened in your life? And what are the things that need to be learned? How well, in that crisis, did you see that you were guided by the non-negotiables of the Word of God? How well have you prepared yourself for the crisis that's coming that we don't even know about? Are you preparing yourself for that time so that you can enter into it as a crisis, but with a level of grace and calmness and stability? In other words, what it all boils down to is, are you obedient to the faith? Let's pray. So, Father, in these times, it seemed ever darker Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that are um, burdened. Create us in our minds a, a distraction where we can't focus on the things that are fleeting, but rather an, almost a sense of impatience with these things. Let us do times of taking stock and considering ourselves before our holy God. Let's be men and women of humility and seriousness. Let's be known for those things. Strengthen us toward that task, Father. Cause us to look upon our glorious Christ who has died and rose again. The one who is our faithful high priest who bears us in our weaknesses, clothes us in his righteousness. Cause us to know him all the more and cling to him and have him be what frames our thinking and our doing in your son's name. Amen.